Welcome to Tidbits of Research. My name's Sparanda Sandu. My guest today is Dr. Alice Nadeau, currently an NSF postdoctoral fellow in mathematics at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. Her research is in dynamical systems and, in particular, their applications in ecology and climate. She did her PhD at University of Minnesota, and her undergraduate years were spent at Grinnell College in Iowa. We talked today about how picking your research topic is less about the research than some might think, her perspective on math as a tool in service of its applications in the real world, and her outreach activities, through which she encourages children to find the fun within mathematics. Alice Nadeau, welcome to Tidbits of Research. So your research is in dynamical systems. Mm-hmm. Let's start with what these are, and in general, what would you say are the kinds of questions a mathematician whose research is in dynamical systems is trying to answer? Yeah, that's a it's a hard question to start off with. Uh, dynamical systems is a really, really broad field, and I think if you brought two dynamicists into a room and asked them that question, they would have wildly different answers. Like, I can imagine you asking my academic sister the same question and we would come up with wildly different answers. So like even amongst the same like dynamical system family tree. Uh, And that's because, okay, so you asked me what a dynamical system is. Uh, For me, uh, it's a system that is describing something that's evolving in time. And the things that I study are mathematical models applied to the climate system in various forms. I have a range of projects that go from very, very applied. Uh, I work with astronomers on building models to study the climate of other planets, all the way to very theoretical. We're asking very technical mathematical questions about dynamical systems. And so the dynamical systems I think about are um they're systems of differential equations and so we have a derivative and we're describing that derivative uh with a vector field and how do these mathematical objects like derivatives or vector fields appear in the models you're looking at yeah so we have some variables that describe the things we want to look at so in a very simple climate model we might have the thing we want to look at is surface temperature. And we want to know how the surface temperature is changing in time. That's the derivative. And then we have a function that tells us how the temperature is is changing in time relative to some physical mechanisms that control that or some mechanisms that we're trying to understand. And uh, yeah, that's... Uh, some mathematical questions that come up um, in the climate models that I look at uh, involve the types of equations that we're thinking about. So when you take an ordinary differential equations class in college, at the sophomore level, you'll talk about systems of equations where everything is continuous and nice. But when we try to model the real world, sometimes we need to use discontinuous systems or um, systems that depend explicitly on time. 
um, which kind of throws a wrench into the typical way or the, the like foundational way we're taught about dynamical systems. Um, so I'm thinking about how we translate the, the tools and techniques that we have for continuous systems into the world where things might be not continuous. And not continuous is closer to reality. In some cases. Although I think, again, if you pulled in another dynamicist, they might disagree with me. But so one of the examples of this discontinuous behavior that we can like really hold on to, um, in the ocean, there are layers of water, like water depths of different density and temperature. And if the water is less dense, so if, if layer one on top of layer two is less dense, there's no mixing. It just sits on top of layer two. Um, but the instant it becomes more dense, either by more salt being present or um, being colder, there will start to be mixing between the two layers. And it's not a continuous process. It's either there's mixing or there's no mixing. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's one way we can think about it. The way that discontinuity appears in the models that I think about is the reflectivity of Earth's surface. Mm -hmm. So ice is much more reflective than the surface of the ocean. Um, and that's also a discontinuous situation. If we think about the pictures that we have of Earth from outer space, we can see a like line where the ice caps are in Antarctica and the Arctic. So going off your definition, it's such a broad field, sounded from how you defined it that it would have applications in social systems, history, and biology. And your work is in ecology and climate. What was it about these particular fields that attracted you or made research interesting for you? Yeah, so I, I'm i going to not answer that question, not because <laughs> I don't want to, but because so I, I am, this is one of the things that I'm really curious about too. And when I was in grad school, when we had the open house day where the um, accepted undergrads can come see what the department is like and decide if they want to come there. Sure. We had a department-wide lunch where all the professors came and tables were set up divided by discipline. So there was a dynamical systems table that perspective students could come and sit at if they're curious about what dynamical systems was like at the graduate program. And they encourage current graduate students to go as well so that, you know, if there's questions about what the grad program is like, they can ask them at the lunch. Mm -hmm. And when you already know all the faculty, when you've been there for a while, as the current grad students were, it's, uh, I, I started asking people sort of that exact same question, like, how did you get into dynamical systems? Basically, everyone I talked to said that they got into their particular area of research because they really identified with a professor who was teaching a class on dynamical systems. That's the same for me, too. My PhD advisor was, he led a seminar on climate math my first year of grad school that I attended uh, every session meeting or whatever. And it was just a really welcoming environment. 
And I also thought the math was interesting. Right. But for me, it was more about like, do I get along with this person? And, you know, can I imagine spending a lot of time talking to them about math? That's a very interesting way of bringing the human aspect into the research. It mm-hmm. sounds like you had many potential research directions, but at the end, it was a decision based on the person, not the research. Yeah. So I, in undergrad, I had the opportunity to do two math research projects. One was at my home undergrad institution and the other was an REU. And both of those were very unrelated to climate math. One was a combinatorics project and the other was a geometry project. I thought they were interesting, but I didn't feel super motivated to continue studying them in grad school. I did attend a combinatorics seminar for a while, but it just didn't like click with me. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think there's definitely a part that you do have to like what you're researching for your graduate work. But I think, I mean, our group um, at the University of Minnesota was so like nice and welcoming and supportive that grad school would have been so different in a different group. I came from a really small liberal arts college. Um, and so I really, I don't know if I could have articulated it at the time, but I really liked that support system. I needed that in order to get through everything. Oh, so you kind of later realized that the support system that was kind of inherent at your undergrad was something that you gravitated towards during your PhD. Yeah. Well, We can kind of go a little bit in that direction. You went to undergrad to Grinnell Mm -hmm. College, right? You majored in math. Do you still follow Grinnell College news? Do you call yourself a Grinnellian? I was reading about this. (laughs) I do call myself a Grinnellian. I think Grinnell is kind of a cult. I mean, I think a lot of like small liberal arts colleges in the middle of nowhere are pretty (laughs) cultish. But yeah, I do. I think the Grinnell, I mean, I can't speak to any other alumni group, but the Grinnell alumni group is very active. Active how? Yeah, when I was in the Twin Cities, we had like monthly alumni gatherings at different things. So one month we go to a brewery and go on a brewery tour or, you know, the next month an alumni would have a show that they were putting up at one of the local theaters and we would organize something you know, a a day where everyone could go. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so I think a lot of Grinnellians do keep in touch with the community. And I think that's part of that is because it's a really close community when you're an undergraduate. Because yeah, the the college itself is about 1600 students. That's pretty small. Yeah. (laughs) The community of Grinnell is not a whole lot bigger than that. Um, And you're just surrounded by cornfields. So there's not a whole lot to do. Um, A lot of People are from out of state, and so they don't, uh, people don't really have cars. And so even though Des Moines and Iowa City are about an hour away each, um, most people don't, most people just stay on campus, even on the weekends. So what was it like living in Grinnell, Iowa? And I guess, how does that compare to Ithaca, New York? (laughs) Which one might also say is in the middle of nowhere, but you would have now kind of a very different experience. Yeah, it's, it's a lot different. So I grew up in the Twin Cities as a kid, and then we moved to um, Waterloo, Iowa in, um, in middle school. 
And I really hated Iowa. I was super bitter, like probably still deep down bitter about that (laughs) because we were going, um, you know, we lived in the Twin Cities. We lived like three blocks away from a Nepal restaurant where we got takeout from every Sunday and we had momos and curry. And then we moved to Waterloo, Iowa, which at the time like they had a Chinese restaurant and an Italian restaurant. And that was, that was it. And it's much, it's much different now. Um, so this is, we moved there in like 2003. Um, so, so a lot has changed in Waterloo, Iowa. Um, but it was, it was like not quite big enough to have all the cultural aspects of a large city, but not small enough to be quaint. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I really didn't want to go to school in Iowa, but my mom made me apply to Grinnell and then I visited and really liked it. But uh, you asked me a question and I forgot what it was. It was... Oh, what was it like? Comparing, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, compare Grinnell to Ithaca. Ithaca feels very different than Grinnell. And yeah, so depending on your perspective of where you were before Ithaca, to me, it feels feels much more vibrant than Grinnell because it, to me, it feels like there's a big like vacation. Um, it's a vacation hotspot in the summer and then for sure the university is a lot bigger yeah Grinnell's probably I don't know what the population is but it's probably something like 5,000 so Ithaca is like 20,000 without students I think maybe I don't know if that's I think it's well the students are about 20,000 if you include like grad students and postdocs Mm. I think but yeah definitely much bigger than what you're (laughs) describing yeah I think it gives the same sort of feel because there really isn't anything super close by. Although coming from the Midwest, to be able to drive six hours and end up in like basically any of the major cities on the East Coast is like a very interesting phenomenon. Because if you drive for six hours in the Midwest, you get to Fargo. North Dakota or something you know <laughs> like you, or more corn I don't know it's just <laughs> different yeah. um again going on my my research it looked like Grinnell is a lot about kind of mentoring and then I, I read a little bit about your interest in mentoring undergrads and outreach and all of that stuff do you think Grinnell was where you developed that interest or is that something that you can pinpoint even earlier um Yeah, I think it really came from Grinnell. I mean, I don't know. It's hard to tell. I don't think there was a whole lot of like focus on mentoring um, in like my high school or like explicit anything like that. Yeah, explicitly. Um, But in at Grinnell, I participated in the Grinnell Science Project, which is an amazing program. Everywhere should have this. Tell us more about it. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. Uh, So it's a, it happens the week before new student orientation and they invite um, underrepresented students who are interested in the sciences to come to campus. And basically with the idea of like introducing them to the sciences at Grinnell, that's how it's billed. Um, But the actual goal is to just, have them form friend groups. That's lovely. Yeah, so that they don't feel alone. And so I participated in that for my freshman year. And then I 
served as a student mentor for that the rest of my time at Grinnell. Did you still keep in touch with the people you met during that week? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I mean, that was basically my friend group the whole time through Grinnell. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah, and then in grad school, my roommate was one of my friends from the Grinnell Science Project. So that's amazing. Like she was in my wedding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Lifelong friendship. For sure. That's so amazing. I One of my best friends I met during pre-orientation at Wellesley College. Mm-hmm. So they went to um, grad school at University of Minnesota as well? Um, no, she, she did um, Lutheran Volunteer Corps for a year after graduating. And then she's from the Twin Cities. So she moved back. Um, that's where she wanted to end up. Um, and then she eventually did go to grad school, but not uh, in math in a in um, public policy, although she was a math major. So just put that in there. I yeah, she was a poli sci math double major, and she does really cool stuff. She worked for a long time for the Center for Victims of Torture in the universe or in the Twin Cities. Um, oh gosh, like, that's such hard work. Yes, it it was very hard, but very important like compiling um, data about refugees in the in the U.S. basically and across the world. It's very humbling. Yeah, <laughs> but I think like math majors don't necessarily think about jobs like that, I think. I mean, I don't think jobs like that are presented to math majors in general as like careers they could have. For sure. I feel like oftentimes it's more like, oh, you can work in data science. Or, oh, you can be a software engineer. Or, oh, you can be in the, the academic realm. Yeah. But very little about, like, well, you can work with astronomers and talk about the climate on other planets. <laughs> yeah. So I do want to go back to that. You were mentioning that part of your work is using very applied questions, and part of it is using kind of very technical questions. Do you have, like... How much of your work would you say overall comes from math and how much from like climate science or ecology? Can you even kind of like figure that out? <laughs> yeah, I like to think of it. I don't know if this is going to happen forever, but a lot of what's happened so far is that I get really interested in a specific application. And then it turns out that there's some sort of need that mathematics can provide there. That's very nicely put. <laughs> yeah. So so I like to think of the math that I do in some sense in service to these applications that just motivate me like on a sort of different direction than mathematics. Like I would like us to not have a climate crisis. I mean, we're probably there already, but that's one of the things that if I can do something to help mitigate that, then that would be real nice. Yeah, so that, I mean, hopefully that'll <laughs> sustain my career. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so my graduate career started with looking at a climate model that gets used to study Earth's past climate, so the glacial ages. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it is also by chance. So during my time in grad school, the... New Horizons flyby of Pluto happened. And so we got all these really amazing pictures of Pluto from the New Horizons mission. And I wondered, and my advisor wondered, like, could we adapt this model to study 
what we have just observed about Pluto, which um, if you are not familiar with the New Horizons mission um, or the results of that, uh, it was a little spaceship that we shot past Pluto and into the Kuiper belt beyond Pluto. And the pictures we got back of Pluto were shocking to scientists because Pluto's surface was apparently geologically active, which means that there were smooth parts of it. So there weren't, it didn't look like the moon where there were just craters everywhere, but there were ice flows. The largest glacier in the solar system is on Pluto. That's exciting. Nitrogen glacier that has what appear to be convection cells on it. So, And what's a convection cell? A convection cell is, you can kind of think about it like uh, when you're boiling water uh, on your stove in a pot, the bubbles are coming up in the middle. And then if this were on a glacial scale, it's not boiling, it's not bubbles, but warmer stuff is coming up from the bottom because the bedrock is warmer than the surface. And then um, on the edges, it's being convected back down. And so there are all these like polygonal shapes on Pluto's surface, which they think this is happening. So new ice is coming up from the bottom, the surface of Pluto, and then convecting down into the edges of the polygons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it was just really interesting and kind of cool. And and there were really models adapted to study Pluto's surface because Basically, everyone thought Pluto was pretty boring (laughs) from what we could see from Earth. Just got to get close. Yeah. You know, it was demoted to a dwarf planet. You know, before New Horizons, Pluto was not having a good time. But (laughs) I think New Horizons really elevated it again. Um, I mean, I think the public really identifies with Pluto. I don't know. Maybe I'm projecting. (laughs) I like Pluto a lot. (laughs) Did you like Pluto before kind of getting so into it with research? Um, I don't think I had really thought about Pluto before I had done research on it, but I really like identified with it. I don't know. For no real reason. Like, you know, it's been neglected out at the edge of the solar system for so long. And now it's helping us understand all these things. Yeah. So my thesis, a major part of my thesis was adapting this Earth climate model to Pluto. And in order to do that, you have to change a bunch of things. And we need math to figure out how to do that. Uh, and the techniques from dynamical systems. Um, so one of, the, one of the big things that is different about Pluto is that it's the tilt of its rotational axis is 120 degrees. Um, so Earth's axial tilt is 23 degrees. And that's why we have seasons. And Pluto's extreme tilt meant that sunlight is distributed across the surface very differently than it is on Earth. One result of my thesis was that this different distribution of sunlight could account for the position of that large glacier on Pluto's surface. That's really cool. Yeah. So it can't be definitive because we only have one picture <laughs> of Pluto in time, but it suggests that it could be there because of how sunlight is distributed on Pluto's surface. So it's not the the ice cap is not on Pluto's poles. Um, it's around its equator, just north of it. 
so this was an instance in which you kind of used Earth models to infer things about other planets. Does it ever happen kind of like the other way around? Um, not that I know of. Basically, we have studied Earth a lot. And we've only really been thinking about other planets as things we can model their climates of for a short, a relatively short time. And so everything that, um, that I know of that gets used to model the climate of other planets is an adaptation of something that was used to study something on Earth. It does make sense since there's just so much unknown. Yeah. Now, a kind of fascination of mine is research paper titles. And you have a recent paper called Stable Asymmetric Ice Belts in an Energy Balance Model of Pluto. Mm-hmm. How did that kind of like come to be, especially when there's kind of collaboration? Because oftentimes you just have to mask so much of what's happening and make it attractive. Um, and you change the title for the journal you're writing, you're sending it for. Yeah, I guess the title to me is hopefully you can get across what is novel about what you're writing. I mean, so many things are published all the time. Um, and you want, you want the people who, care, who you think should care about what you're writing about to know that they should care about it. Right. Um, so energy balance models are talking about how temperature changes on a planet's surface. Um, and until that paper, there had been no, no asymmetric stable configurations of ice. And so that's, that's how that title came to be. The novelty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. You were mentioning that you would like kind of your math to be in service of others. And I was reading about the different kinds of outreach you've been doing. Some of them caught my eye. Um, the math and science family and phone fear booth and the count me in math camp for girls, um, which seemed to be aimed more towards elementary school. What kinds of things, mathy or sciencey, did you do? Um, if you remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so both of those and also the women in math, uh, the women in math group at the University of Minnesota always had a booth at the Minnesota State Fair that I volunteered at, um, which if you're not from Minnesota or like the upper Midwest might not mean a whole lot, but like the Minnesota State Fair is the event of <laughs> the summer in the Twin Cities. Um, so, so yeah, and, and that's another one where we mostly interact with elementary age children. What are some of the things we did? So um, we, it's mostly just getting people like to think about math as something that can be fun. Um, so one of the ones we did was um, coloring some like, I don't know, coloring book pages that we had made that represented Fibonacci sequ sequences. And then we told them about how Fibonacci sequences come up in nature and that sort of stuff. Um, and what are some of the other things we did? It's hard to remember. Um, what are they? So we also did projects with gyroscopes. Is that what they are? With the little like cog wheels that you put inside other cog wheels. And then you like trace out shapes with a pen. 
Oh gosh, I don't know. I don't think that uh, is what they're called. Uh, but so they make different patterns. So so they're these like little cogwheels that have different numbers of teeth in them, and then you place them inside bigger cogwheels that have different numbers of teeth. And depending on the ratio, you might draw a circle, or you might draw like a trefoil knot sort of thing, or one that has like a bunch of loops in it. And they all kind of look like flowers. <laughs> um, which I imagine was appealing for that age group. Yes. Yeah. Um, but when you get slightly older people to come by the booth, uh, like sixth graders, for example, you can ask them like why you think, why they think one wheel made this picture and why the other one made a different one. That's always, I feel, a hard part to find something that like younger kids find interesting and older kids find interesting. Mm -hmm. Was that something that came to be after like uh, trial runs? <laughs> yeah, we tried to do, so the Women in Math booth tries to run a different activity every year. Um, and the Family Fun Fair, we tried to do something different every year. So one thing that we did was this thing called One Cut Origami. Um, and I don't know if this mathematician invented it, but he has a whole book sort of about this, um, Eric Demain. Um, and this is related to the REU that I did. Um, so that's like where <laughs> like the most application of that REU is that I did it for this math and science family fun fair activity. But the idea is that if you fold a piece of paper in like quote the right way you can do one straight line cut and when you unfold it there'll be something there and so we we had pieces of paper with shapes on them and we helped people depending on the age we helped the kids fold them or ask them like how would you fold this to just do one cut in order to cut out this shape that was really fun because kids love cutting things with scissors <laughs> And it's, it's, it's a really interesting, like, just like really interesting little part of mathematics that exists because you can prove some things about like, depending on the shape, you know, can you cut it out with just one cut? Uh, so the things we had people cut out were squares and stars, but then we had more complicated ones that were like a flower that if you fold it up in all the right way, all the right ways and line up all the edges over the top of each other, you can do just one cut and out comes this shape. That's really cool. Yeah. I kind of want to do that now. <laughs> Did you ever have any feelings about the fact that it was called math and science as if math wasn't part of science? I, I think math is a weird thing. Like I think depending on who you ask, yeah, it could be a science. It could be part of the liberal arts. Mm -hmm. It becomes very apparent when you're applying to postdocs, I think, or I think even grad school, it's very clear that the way we teach math is not how the sciences are taught, like at the very highest levels. Um, so I had some friends go to grad school in chemistry and they, they started on their PhD research projects essentially immediately. Right. Um, and they didn't really take classes uh, in grad school. They just did research. 
and I don't think, I mean, one, one of my friends who did chemistry grad school taught, but she wanted to teach at a liberal arts college. And so she wanted to teach in grad school, um, but they weren't expected to teach. And this is in comparison to like a normal kind of like PhD track where you take classes for the first couple of years and then you're expected to teach more or less all the time. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that 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 sort of set up, um, I knew someone who went to philosophy grad school and that really felt more aligned with her experience that she took classes for a while and then started working on her thesis. Interesting. Yeah. And also had to teach intro philosophy classes and lead discussions and stuff like that. So yeah, I don't I don't have a problem with it being called math and science. I think that it's I think it's different. I do object to when people call math like an art or you know, like something beautiful. Um, because I think it's not beautiful. I don't know. I don't I don't identify with that description of math. If other people think it's beautiful, that's fine. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I, I guess like if I had to pin it down, <clears throat> it would probably, to me, be more like a language, the way I think about it, I guess. So, And it does go in line, I feel, with how we kind of teach math often. It's a lot about getting accustomed to a certain concept. Mm-hmm. Going back to the like outreach with kids, you were saying that the kids had tons of fun and whatnot. What was it in particular about kind of like outreach with elementary school children that was appealing? Um, it just, especially in grad school, I haven't had the opportunity to really do that here at Cornell, anything uh, outreach with younger children. Um, it's just such a break from your like normal day-to-day life of what a grad student is that to see, I mean, I think as a grad student, I was very jaded <laughs> mm. and like, gosh, why am I doing this? Like, but to see people enjoying, like not even really enjoying math because it's not really math. It's more like art projects, but basically just seeing that you like created something that can bring someone joy. Like that's, that's why I like, doing stuff like that you were mentioning you haven't done um kind of any of that in in Ithaca I'm imagining partly is because there is no time (laughs) also because currently there is a pandemic (laughs) um is that something that you feel like you would like to keep doing yeah for sure I think yeah it's hard to say what part what parts of like if I was too busy or it was the pandemic or both that caused like not being like not being involved in that part of the math community here because I know that that happens like there is work with the elementary schools here um yeah it's something I do want to keep being involved with I think it's a really important part of just like existing in one's own community that like making math seem less about like two plus two is four or whatever. Um, It's a really important thing to introduce to younger children. Yeah, one of the, so I'm teaching real analysis in the fall with Laurent Salafkost. He's been telling me about how in France where he grew up, the way they teach math is very different. 
and you learn about set theory, you know, and it in elementary school. And when I was an undergraduate student and I got to classes where they taught us about set theory, um, that was really interesting to me. Like I had never been exposed to anything like set theory before. And I really liked it. Like I really, so dynamical systems is a sub field of the mathematical field of analysis. And then sort of, you know, another, another field could be algebra. And when I took, I took algebra and analysis, well, I took analysis first, and then, no, I think, well, I took them really close to each other. I can't remember the order that I took them in, but I absolutely hated analysis and I loved algebra. It just seemed so much fun. And set theory is, was introduced to me as, you know, like the first part of my algebra course. And I definitely did not, like, if you had asked me going into grad school, if I wanted to continue studying analysis, I would have told you absolutely not. It is so boring. <laughs> no, thank you. That's amazing. Yeah, I hope to bring that perspective to my class this fall, because um, this class is like something you would take after you take the calculus sequence. And as a introduction to what upper level math in undergrad might be. So I really don't want people to get discouraged that I hate analysis, like I hate upper level mathematics, or I hate analysis, I'll never do analysis. But it's much more interesting, I think, the further along you go in it. I think as a, as a student thinking back when like my professor was really into the material and when they thought it was fun, I think it really helped me as a student. So I think your students are in for a fun ride. Well, this has been so much fun. It's been great to talk to you. Thank you so much. For sure.